This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The 2021 Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival was held in Aotearoa, Dunedin, our UNESCO City of Literature, from the 6th until the 9th of May. In this podcast series, we share recordings from these sessions with you. In Women Past and Present, Vanda Simon, Steph Green, H.G. Parry and Angela Wanhala talk about women who've come before and the footprints they laid for the future. Hosted by Majella Cullinane and presented by the Otago Daily Times. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Dia huiva kārida, agus falta galer. A very warm welcome to tonight's event, Women Past and Present. What do they have to tell us about the future? My name is Magella Cullinan, and it is my great pleasure to host this event, supported by the Otago Daily Times. Our writers tonight come from a range of backgrounds, historical, fantastical, magical, and criminal. (laughs) Each speaker has 12 minutes to speak, and... Um, I actually don't need Mr. Tui Timer tonight because they've all promised that they are well within the time frame. So without further ado, let me introduce our first speaker. Angela Walhalla Kaitahu is an associate professor in the history program at the University of Otago. She researches the impact of colonialism upon Fanau and communities and has published extensively on Maori women's history. Her publications include Matters of the Heart, A History of Interracial Marriage in New Zealand, published by Auckland University Press in 2013, and with Lucky Patterson, Hereo Wahine, Māori Women's Voices from the 19th Century, which is also published by Auckland University Press in 2017. Can you please give a very warm Dunedin welcome to Angela? Well, thank you. It's great to be a part of this panel. Um, I wish I were the more interesting person who had the fantasy, magic, criminal background, but I'm not. I'm the boring historian, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about the past tonight. So, himihinui kia koutou katoa. Um, and I'm going to be talking a little bit about Hideo Wahini, um, that, that book. So some of you may have heard some of this before, for which I uh, apologise profusely. So it seems appropriate uh, in a year in which a draft New Zealand histories curriculum uh, has been released that we gather here to reflect upon women in the past and present and across generations and places. But I'm a little bit concerned about that history curriculum because women are almost entirely absent from that draft. I encourage you to go and have a look at it. Uh, Women are mentioned twice in it and Māori women twice uh, as well. Uh, under the state and people for years 9 and 10. So please go and have a look at it and actually have a comment on that draft. I think it's really important that we have a say on what our future history uh, is going to look like and how it's going to be taught. I think this absence is particularly striking given that the Waitangi Tribunal has started to hear uh, the mana wahine claim, which was lodged in 1993, and they're starting to hear that this year the first um, um, hearings in terms of the foundation of that inquiry held at Waitangi uh, on the 6th of February this year. Now, that um, claim asserts that Māori women's status, mana, leadership and authority was reduced 
were elided under the weight of colonialism, its institutions and its laws, crown policies uh, and actions. Um, I do hope that our draft history curriculum doesn't become a part of that story as well. Um, so it's re- it is really critical that we have a, a say on what that draft history curriculum looks like. So tonight I just want to chart some aspects of Māori women's political activism across generations, and I'll be drawing from Hereo Wahine, co-written with Lockie Patterson over there, and that book focuses upon a wide range of Māori women's writings from our public archives. It draws upon publicly accessible archival and manuscript collections, uh, and in that book we aim to produce a volume that prioritises Māori women's experiences through their own words, their speeches, their evidence and their testimonies uh, from the period 1830 to 1900. And I'm focusing on this book in particular because it really fits with uh, my approach to doing history, one that focuses on personal narratives and one that's deeply interested in approaching uh, the researching and writing of the past by foregrounding people's lives Um, and by bringing to the fore perspectives of those people and the places they lived Uh, that haven't always been at the centre of our historical narratives. So I see this panel as an opportunity to pause uh, and to reflect about how we tell women's histories and perhaps what these could look like in the future. Uh, In the Hiri Wahine, we want to push against a too often stated claim that there are limited sources for examining Māori women's experiences in the 19th century. That's archival sources, let alone all the lovely, wonderful waiata and other material that's available. We thought it was important to make a concerted effort to locate sources for to continue to accept claims of source scarcity is to allow historical silences uh, to continue. And those should always be contested. Every historical silence has to be contested. So I want to draw on just a few examples tonight from letters and petitions that some of those women wrote to the government. So Māori women were politically active in their own communities, both in the past and clearly in the present, and have actively and persistently critiqued the state through letter-writing campaigns and petitionary appeals. Uh, A woman called Rippeka, for instance, stated in her 1884 letter, and I quote, I forwarded petitions during the years 1878, 1879, 1880, 1882, 1883 and 1884, and as I have now heard that you are the Minister for Native Affairs, I have sent a petition to you also to see what you will do for me. Now, she never gave up on her appeal, and that was often regularly dismissed. Every petition just passed on. And uh, she put into action a statement in her 1882 petition that only her death would stop her from writing to obtain redress, and that was exactly what happened. Her file in National Archives covers the 1870s right until uh, 1899. Uh, She passed away in 1905. Another example involving two women from Canterbury, uh, which they sent a letter to HK Tauroa, uh, the Southern Māori uh, representative, uh, in January 1893, about land at Waihora in Lake Ellesmere. Um, then they followed that up with a formal petition to Parliament in August 1894. Uh, and Waihora is where my family are from, so this is a particularly important petition to me. So I'm going to read this out in full, because it is important to hear the voices of women who very really, uh, the kinds of women who very really appear in our history books. So this is Tomatu, 8th of August 1894. To the Honourable the Speaker and members of the Legislative Council... We, your petitioners, are native women living at Wairewa and Taumatu. There is a pa called Waikakahi, 
uh, situated on the eastern side of Waihora Lake in the provincial district of Canterbury. Before the arrival of Europeans in this colony, the Waikiki Pa and its adjacent fern grounds and eel weirs were in the occupation of our ancestors. In the year 1848, your petitioners heard of Mr Kemp, who is said to have negotiated the purchase of the Naitau land. Your petitioners heard at that time that the natives would retain their pa in Kainga, where they lived. Your petitioners knew this to apply to this particular pa where Mr Mantell was commissioner. Your petitioners were living there at that time. It was not until your petitioners married that one went to live at Taumatu and the other at Wairewa. We did not know that our birthplace had been taken by the government. It was not until years afterward that we knew the government had taken Waikiki Pa. One of your petitioners spoke to Mr Alex Mackay, Commissioner, about Waikiki Pa, but has not received an answer. And your petitioners also wrote to the government last year about the matter and were told that the Pa had been made a reserve for school purposes. We, your petitioners, pray that our Pa and sacred places and eel fisheries and fern workings may be returned to us or such other relief granted to us as your Honourable Council may consider just uh, and equitable. Not much happened over uh, the next three years. So in October 1897, the year that Māori women won the right to vote in the Māori Parliament, they dictated a letter to the Native Minister reactivating their appeal. And they requested that Waikiki be returned to us with our cultivations, adding, it would be a proper thing to give back to us what are our permanent kāinga, and which belong to our parents. This is a very grievous calamity to us because we never sold our power and our cultivations. So officials undertook further investigations. Uh, it's unclear really what happened, uh, but they certainly did not bother to speak to these two women at all about their interests or rights in these uh, lands that they were petitioning about. And it's clear that what we know about Tomatu from later on, that their appeal was unsuccessful. And my final example is a 78-year-old woman who wrote to the Native Minister in 1891, and I'm going to quote her as well, because um, I do think these petitions are really powerful examples of women engaging with the state and critiquing them. All my interests in the land of the Naito have been seized by the government without the payment to me of even the smallest sum of money as an equivalent for them. Europeans are living in affluence upon the lands which the blood of my ancestors was shed. While I am in want of sufficient food and clothing... Better would it have been for me had the mountains and hills fallen on me or that I had been carried away by the floods, then I would not have been reduced to my present state of poverty. Friend, the Native Minister and the Government, I appeal to you to show your servant some consideration. I love her eloquent words in that petition. So all three of these wahine exemplify how petitions and letters were a vital way for Indigenous activism to take place. In content, petitions and the letters that accompany them are political in nature, for they try to hold the government responsible for landlessness and poverty, and thus should be considered within the context of a longer tradition of written protest and critique of the state. Such petitions are an important body of Māori writing and activism. That's something that we've argued in Hiri Wahine. And they give voice and embody our Indigenous aspirations. They also show that women had political voice and that land was and is at the heart of Māori political activity because it is crucial to economic survival but also cultural identity. Petitioning also speaks to the centrality of land and collective futures. And also stresses that women had land rights and the ability and freedom to direct that land as they saw fit. And finally, 
Petitions convey political, economic and social aspirations. A mark or a signature is a record of authority, symbolic of presence in a political act. In signing their name, Māori women were engaging in political activism in order to bring about a just future for the generations to come. Come here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Angela. Our next speaker is H.G. Parry. Hannah is the author of The Unlikely Escape of Uriah Heep, 2019, A Declaration of the Rights of Magicians, 2020, and the forthcoming A Radical Act of Free Magic, 2021. All are published by Orbit Hashet Books. She's also written a number of short stories. She says with similarly long and unwieldy titles. She gained her PhD in English literature at Victoria University, writing about children's fantasy and the epic tradition, and went on to tutor English film and media studies there and at Massey University before becoming a full-time writer. She currently lives in a book-infested flat on the Capiti Coast with her sister and a growing menagerie of small animals. Some things she likes include books, trees, windy days, travelling, drawing, BBC costume dramas, potatoes, rabbits, mice, tea, more books and history. Please welcome H.G. Parry. Okay, um, hello everybody. Thank you very much for having me um, and thank you for all coming. Um, my name is Hannah. I'm a writer of science fiction and fantasy, mostly fantasy, but today I want to tell you a story about the birth of science fiction. It starts with an 18-year-old girl. Uh, In 1816, Mary Godwin, the daughter of the feminist philosopher Mary Wollstonecraft, was travelling through Europe with her half-sister Claire Claremont and her lover, the notorious poet and political radical Percy Shelley. You all know where this is going. Um, Here we go. Um, Mary and Shelley had met two years earlier at the bookshop belonging to her father and stepmother, her own mother having died giving birth to her. Shelley was a devotee of her father's philosophical writings. He had come to meet his idol and try to help him out of his debts. But instead, the then 16-year-old Mary and the 21-year-old Shelley fell passionately in love, despite the minor complication that Shelley was already married with children. Uh, Since then, the couple had been living together out of wedlock, estranged from both their families, travelling frequently to escape debtors, and trying to write great literature and live life according to their ideals, which included atheism, vegetarianism, and free love at least 100 years before any of these things were really a thing. Um, That summer, they were staying with the infamous Lord Byron in Geneva, Switzerland, The weather was strangely cold and stormy, and rain kept them trapped inside for days on end. This, we now know, was actually caused by the eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia the year before, which set off a volcanic winter that caused 1816 to be known as the year without a summer. But they didn't know this yet. They only knew that they were bored and wet and reading gothic stories to pass the time, until finally Lord Byron challenged them all to come up with a story of ghosts and terrors. From this challenge, inspired by recent experiments in galvanism and a terrifying nightmare, Mary began to write a tale of a man creating a monster. 
this is the story of how Frankenstein was written and published two years later. It's been told many times on stage and screen because it's such a good story. Apart from anything else, there's something really irresistible about stories where two or more brilliant writers are together in one room. It starts to feel like crossover fiction. Um, and it's also the story of the creation of the first major novel to really use science to explore ideas. Ideas, in this case, about what makes life, um, the question of, is man naturally good, uh, what responsibility do creators have to their creation, and the perils of pursuing knowledge without humanity. It was the beginning of science fiction, the literature of ideas. The topic of this evening is women of the past and what they can tell us about the future. It seemed really fitting then to me to talk about science fiction and fantasy. They're kind of related, but I'm sort of narrowing on science fiction, but I'll fantasy is closely related. Uh, a genre that often looks ahead to the future in the most literal of ways. And yet, despite the story I just gave you about the origins of science fiction, the presence of women in science fiction and fantasy as authors, as readers, and as protagonists has a messy and controversial history. For a long time, the accepted history of science fiction was that until around the late 60s, early 70s, it was a totally male-dominated field. With a few rare exceptions, this history goes, women didn't write it, and they certainly didn't publish it. And it was a male-dominated field, I don't want to deny that, but the American science fiction and fantasy writer Connie Willis, who some of you might have read, um, challenged this acceptive narrative in an essay she wrote in the early 90s. She pointed out, quite correctly, that there have always been women writing and publishing science fiction, women that she herself grew up reading. Women like Lee Brackett, who, among other things, wrote the first script for Star Wars Episode V, uh, like Judith Merrill and Catherine McLean, Zena Henderson, C.L. Moore, and now I'm just kind of saying names, but um, you get the idea. There were a lot of them and they were writing. Um, this won't be surprising to anyone who's ever looked deeply into assumptions about what historically women aren't supposed to have done. As Angela's just pointed out, women did all kinds of things that men do throughout history, and history tends to forget that. Um, Having said this, it is true that in the late 1960s, a wave of explicitly feminist writers made their presence known once and for all, and the face of science fiction started to change. Sometimes these women hid in plain sight. In 1976, James Tiptree Jr. was one of the most respected and highly acclaimed writers working in the speculative fiction genre. Tiptree's identity was a mystery to even their closest friends in the industry, leading to speculation that perhaps they worked in the intelligence services. Um, Robert Silverberg, who was one of the grandmasters of science fiction at the time, um, in a foreword to a collection of Tiptree's work, mentioned these theories alongside other speculation that perhaps Tiptree was actually a woman. This last he dismissed as absurd, claiming that there is to me something ineluctably masculine about Tiptree's writing. <laughs> Never use the word ineluctably. <laughs> about things like that. Uh, so it was, a, it was shortly after that, that same year, I think, that um, Tiptree mentioned the recent death of their mother in something that they'd written. Um, fans tracked down the corresponding obituary and they discovered that Tiptree was the then 61-year-old Alice Sheldon. One of her most well-known stories, written under the name of Tiptree, nominated for major awards and lauded for its Hemingway-like male narration, was titled The Woman Men Don't See. LAUGHTER 
It's really good, by the way. Um, yeah, so there are a few other, Andre Norton and CJ Cherry and a few others also had pseudonyms like this, but it, that's the most fun one. Um, but many, though, fought openly for recognition. Um, there were authors like Ursula Le Guin, um, Joanna Russ, Fonda McIntyre, Octavia Butler, um, wrote fiction that challenged ideas about gender, about race, and about the many social constructs that we see as fixed and immutable. Uh, Margaret Atwood followed and her ilk followed close behind and the massive, uh, well, you know, the popular resurgence of her masterpiece, The Handmaid's Tale, recently testifies to its prescience. Nowadays, there's still somewhat of a male bias in science fiction and fantasy, I'd say, but the last decade or so has seen an absolute flood of new voices in the genre, including queer woman, trans woman and woman of colour. Um, this year, when the Hugo and Nebula Award nominations were announced, all of the nominees for Best Novel in both awards were female writers, including New Zealand's own Tamsin Muir. Um, those are, these are the, the top awards in science fiction and fantasy, if you didn't know. Um, so I, one thing that's interesting, I mean, many of them are writing their own cultures, many of them are writing their own experiences, many are writing, I think, interesting genres traditionally associated with women's fiction and combining them with science fiction and fantasy to bring out some un underlying themes, like uh, Zen Cho's Sorcerer to the Crown and C.L. Polk's The Midnight Bargain, which is up for a nebula, um, reconfigure Regency romance to show women fighting for the right to practice magic. So it's kind of Jane Austen, but with magic added. Um, they're really good too. Um, Sylvia Marina Garcia's Mexican Gothic, um, which is also up for both awards, I think, um, uses the Gothic like Frankenstein before it. Um, this time it explores the horrors of colonialism via some really creepy fungus. <laughs> it's, great, it's great too. Um, these books all look back to their predecessors, um, both within genre and outside of genre, but they also look with great bravery toward the future. Very literally, in the case of writers like Martha Wells, whose beloved Murderbot series uh, sees a future ruled by corporations from the point of view of a robot without gender, or N.K. Jemison, whose devastating Broken Earth trilogy recently made her the first writer to win three, go, three Hugo Awards for Best Novel in a Row. Um, my experience growing up with fantasy and science fiction was like that of Connie Willis. I never really thought to look for a woman within genre as a child because I saw them wherever I looked. When I watched reruns of 1960s Doctor Who, I saw a woman's name come up on screen every night. This was Verity Lambert, who in the 60s was the only female drama producer at the BBC. Um, when I watched Star Trek from the same era, I saw Dorothy Fontana as script editor and one of the series' lead writers. In the school library, sliding slightly into fantasy here, but I found Margaret Mahi and Cheryl Jordan and Gail Carson-Levine. In the Tiarawa Science Fiction Library stack, I found Anne McCaffrey and A.C. Crispin and Tamora Pierce, alongside many others. Because I saw them, I never really realised how hard many of them were fighting to be there, or how much louder they had to shout to make their voices heard. I didn't see or took for granted how few there were. At the time, I only saw that there was a place for me in that world. I didn't realise that I only thought that because they cleared it first. From all these women, none of whom I ever meant, I learned to write. From P.D. James, the crime writer, you probably know her as the crime writer, but she also wrote a very wonderful dystopia called The Children of Men. Um, and I learned from her that science fiction didn't have to follow genre conventions, especially particularly masculine ones. I learned it could read very much like character-driven English novels of country houses and Oxbridge scholars, 
and still asked the enormous questions that, that I really valued. Uh, from Nancy Cress and Susan Palwick, I learned that speculative fiction concepts were about nothing if they weren't about people, and they could do things to your heart you don't expect. Closer to home, Margaret Mahi showed me that the stories I loved could take place in our own cities and suburbs and beach houses, and showed me ways of blending family secrets and literary elusiveness and magic in ways I'll never be able to learn in a million years, but I can keep trying. And of course, when I went to write what would be my own first novel, I came back to Mary Shelley. My debut was a story of characters from books coming to life in central Wellington. One of those characters I used was Victor Frankenstein, a scientist pursuing forbidden knowledge about the nature of the life he's been given. I took him for my book because I love him, and because, sorry, they're all there. And because the themes Mary Shelley grapples with were also themes that I wanted to explore. The value and the danger of knowledge and the responsibility that we have for the things we put into the world. I wanted to take what had been given to me over 200 years ago and use it to make something new. This is what it means to be working in a literary genre, to be continually looking back at our predecessors and continually looking ahead to the future all at the same time. It's something science fiction and fantasy has always done particularly well, with its roots in myth and its eye to recent, current, uh, recent social and scientific trends. In this way, the women of the past continue to shape the future of the stories we tell, and those in turn shape the world we build. Thank you very much. <laughs> Our next speaker is Steph Green. Under her pen name Stephanie Holmes, Steph is the USA Today best-selling author of the paranormal, gothic, dark and fantastical. Her books feature clever, witty heroines, secret societies, creepy old mansions and alpha males who always get what they want. Legally blind since birth, Steph received the 2017 Attitude Award for Artistic Achievement. She was also a finalist for a 2018 Women of Influence Award. Steph is the creator of Rage Against the Manuscript, a podcast centered around books and courses to help writers tell their story, find their readers and build, quote, a badass writing career. She lives on a lifestyle block on the South Kaipara coast with her husband, a horde of cantankerous cats, and their medieval sword collection. Please welcome Steph Green. I am Steph. I am a woman, and I am a feminist. But I am an imperfect feminist. I am a feminist, but... I am a feminist, but... I fat shame my cats. My portly Tonkinese, whose name is Socrates, will walk into the room and roll over on his belly and I will say, Oh, here, I will rub your belly, you little tubby tub tub. Or he will push the other cat's head out of her bowl and I will say, Should you really be scarfing your sister's dinner? That jelly meat is going straight to your hips. This is how Socrates has decided that my husband is his favourite. Because James will scoop him up and cradle him and coo about how all cat bellies are beautiful cat bellies and then give him some extra treats. So some of you may be familiar with the British comedian, New Zealand-born British comedian, Deborah Francis White. 
and her Guilty Feminist podcast. So each episode of this podcast starts with the hosts sharing their I'm a feminist but moments. The idea being that feminism can sometimes end up as just another thing for women to feel inadequate about. As women and as minority genders and minority identities, we live in a world that was not built for us. We have always occupied that space, and we've always fought for change in the ways that we know how. But acknowledging that we're sometimes consumed by that space gives us permission to laugh, to see issues instead of bottling them up, and to move on. Laughing at ourselves can take feelings of inadequacy and create community, um, that we're all in this together, fighting the fight imperfectly, and that that is okay, because we don't have to be perfect to change the world. When I was planning this talk, I thought about some of the women who have come before me and how what lives on in history are the incredible things that they've achieved, but not the moments where they doubted themselves or weren't perfect. So I thought tonight what I would do is I would give you Steph's list of influential women of the past and their I'm a feminist but moments. So first up is Cleopatra VII Philopata who was the last queen of Egypt, and yes, I mean that Cleopatra. She ruled with intelligence and determination. Her desire to secure her kingdom and her dynasty and provide stability for her people thrust one of the most powerful empires the world has ever seen into civil war. So this is her I'm a feminist but. I'm a feminist but. I untagged myself from my friend's photograph on Facebook. Now this is ancient Egyptian Facebook, which is kind of hieroglyph book, which is really just someone carving on a stele with like bird squiggle, scary eye squiggle, constipated hippo. So I'm a feminist, but I've untagged myself in my friend's photo on the hieroglyph book because the lighting made my nose look big. <laughs> Next is Queen Septimia Zenobia who ruled the Palmyrian Empire in Syria during the 3rd century AD. Now, Zenobia, she was famous for opening her court to renowned scholars and philosophers, for protecting religious minorities, and for bringing the Roman East under her empire before attempting to secede from Rome completely. Now, I have got for you an extremely, extremely accurate Renaissance portrait of our incredible warrior Syrian queen. You can, as you can see, so if you can't see this, I'm about to audio describe it. So there's a picture of Zenobia. So, you know, looking incredibly Syrian um, and not remotely whitewashed at all. Um, you know, wearing um, extremely prepared for battle in this wafy dress and this very, you know, sumptuous breastplate, um, and you know, and, and a very flimsy spear. Um, but you know, I mean, she's got boots on, so you know that she's ready to stomp the patriarchy. <laughs> so here is Zenobia's. So, so based on this on this image, um, here is Zenobia's. I'm a feminist, but I'm a feminist, but my vizier handed me this tiny spear and said. Here you go, a girly spear for you. And what I should have said was there is no such thing as a girly spear, it is just a spear, and I would like a proper one for gutting Romans. But, but what I actually said was, oh my god, cute.
Now, Sappho. Sappho was a Greek poet who lived on the island of Lesbos, and you can tell by this that I have a classical studies degree. Um, and Sappho was known as one of the finest poets in Greece for her lyric poetry, which was designed to be sung accompanied by the lyre. Her poems, of which only fragments survive, are famed for their exquisite style and erotic content focused on the female eros or love. I'm a feminist, but when the comedian Aristophanes wanted to lampoon me in one of his plays and he said that he planned to have me played by a male actor wearing an enormous fake comedy bosom because women weren't allowed to perform on stage... I should have demanded that a woman be allowed to perform, but I actually said, sure, because I wanted him to like me. <laughs> now, speaking of writers who have influenced me as an author of The Dark and Gothic, and we have this in common, um, oh, not this one, actually, um, Emily Bronte, um, the English novelist who was the author of Wuthering Heights, a masterpiece of Gothic literature. Now, Emily was an independent woman who did not marry and remained relatively reclusive until her death at age 30. I'm a feminist, but even though Heathcliff is an utter bastard and I wrote him to challenge Victorian ideas of morality and not to become the epitome of tall, dark, brooding, tortured, romantic heroism... And even though he's sulky and violent and toxic AF, I would still bang him. Another, another writer whose work I admire um, is Mary Shelley. Um, I think we've all heard a little bit about her. Daughter of the feminist activist Mary Wollenstonecroft and author of one of the most influential gothic horror novels, science fiction novels of all time, Frankenstein. Mary had to fight for recognition for her work as publishers and co um, contemporary writers often claimed that her husband, the poet Shelley, actually wrote it. I am a feminist, but even though I'm one of the greatest horror writers of all time, if I find a spider in the bath, I scream until my husband comes running and deals with it. Frida Kahlo became, um, became known in Mexico and around the world for creating thought-provoking artworks grounded in magical realism. She worked tirelessly despite crippling pain from being disabled with polio as a child and then from a bus accident at age 18 and um, is a heroine for disabled artists the world over. Her 1938 self-portrait, um, which was titled The Frame, was the first work by a 20th century Mexican artist to ever be featured in the Louvre. I'm a feminist, but even though my art is about self-expression and being present in your body and the female experience in all its passion and pain, whenever someone walks into my studio, I still hide my chocolate stash under the sofa cushions. <laughs> Mathematician Catherine Johnson was one of the brains behind the complex calculations that helped us fly into space. In 1969, she helped to successfully send the first man to the moon, and her work is highlighted in the film Hidden Figures about the pioneering African-American woman at NASA. I am a feminist. I am a feminist who runs a team of kick-ass female mathematicians, but our workplace banter does not pass the Bechdel test. Jean Batten was New Zealand's greatest aviator, celebrated around the world for her heroic solo flights during the 1930s. Sometimes she even flew with a little black cat named Buddy as her mascot, so she is a fellow crazy cat lady. 
Following her success, she moved in and out of public view before dying in, in obscurity in Mallorca in Spain in 1982. I'm a feminist, but while I was preparing my gypsy moth for another record-breaking flight, I was lugging a heavy toolbox around. One of the men working in the hangar stopped me and said, pretty ladies shouldn't carry their own toolboxes. And I agreed. <laughs> so I tossed it at him and said, there you go, now follow me. So I hope you have enjoyed these uh, completely fictional, historical, <laughs> I'm a feminist buns. There is so much that we can learn from the women who have come before us about how to be fearless, about how to take up space, about how to strive not just for ourselves but for women of the future. Remember, it's, that, it's what we do that will continue the fight for inclusion and equality and what we have to do... Um, and that we have to do that work from within a space that is not built for us. So sometimes we fall down or we bump into the walls or we trip over the, our, our steps. And that is okay. We do not have to be perfect to change the future. Kia ora. Thank you. Thank you, Steph. Our final speaker is Dunedin's own criminally-minded Vanda Simon. Vanda is the author of the Detective Sam Shepard crime fiction series and the standalone thriller The Faceless. Her novels are published internationally. She's a three-time finalist for the Naya Marsh Award for Best Crime Fiction Novel and was shortlisted for the British CWA New Blood Dagger Award. Based in Dunedin, Vanda produces and hosts a monthly radio show for the Otago Southland NZSA called Right On!, broadcast on ORFM. Among the many roles she enjoys, Vanda is a writing mentor for the NZSA and is the chair of the Otago Southland branch. She was the chair of Copyright Licensing New Zealand, where she served on the board for four years. When she isn't wielding a pen or tapping on a keyboard, Vanda can be found on the business end of a fencing foil. Vanda is a New Zealander of Fijian descent. Please welcome Vanda Simon. Oops, nothing happened, nothing to see here. <laughs> Kia ora, Anissa Bulavanaka. Well, I'm going to talk about one of New Zealand's most notorious criminal minds. A woman of such evil cunning and criminal ingenuity, she was world famous. In fact, she was so skilled at the art of murder, she was known as a queen of crime. I am, of course, referring to Dame Naya Marsh. Now, I'm a New Zealand crime writer who proudly sets her novels in New Zealand, and when asked to talk about women past and present, I could not look past the local girl. Now, picture, if you will, a striking, tall woman with a deep, sonorous, almost English-sounding voice, a woman who dominated the literary scene in her day. And how could you look past her incredible achievements as a crime fiction writer? She wrote 32 Detective Chief Inspector Roderick Allen novels between 1934 and 1982. She was lauded as one of the four queens of crime of the golden era of detective fiction, sharing that accolade with Agatha Christie, Marjorie Allingham and Dorothy Sayers. She was an award in OBE and then was made a dame in 1966, or a damery as she liked to refer to it as. 
She was awarded the first honorary Doctor of Literature from the University of Canterbury. And she was awarded a Grand Master Award for a lifetime achievement by the Mystery Writers of America. Her novels were adapted for television by, amongst others, the BBC. And all of you authors out there, imagine this happening to you. Her publishers produced The Marsh Million, 100,000 copies of 10 books pushed out into the market at once. Now, that is the kind of confidence and accolade any modern writer would kill for, and one only shared by Agatha Christie, H.G. Wells, and George Bernard Shaw. She was and still is arguably one of New Zealand's most successful writers, and yet despite this, she was barely recognised for her crime fiction writing here, where she was lauded only for her Shakespearean production, and she doubted her worth. As she said in her autobiography, Black Beach and Honeydew, intellectual New Zealand friends tactfully avoid all mention of my published work, and if they like me, do so I cannot help but feel in spite of it. Now, as a crime writer, suffering similar self-doubt and the barbs of subtle and unsubtle feedback from some people that crime writing was somehow a second-class form of literature, I felt a solidarity with Nio. So much so that when it came to choosing a topic of research for my PhD, she was my first and obvious choice. I wanted to show how crime writing was an immensely valuable and important form of literature. My I'll-show-you attitude flared up, and I thought, what better way to do it than take this incredible woman from our past and just demonstrate how incredibly clever Naya Marsh was? Or as my mum would put it, you two over there know, I got my dander up. Now, another sort of source of motivation was my sense of sadness that Naya Marsh seemed to have disappeared from New Zealand's collective conscious. My generation and younger generations appeared to be unaware of this extraordinary New Zealander. So my hope was that my research would in some way throw the spotlight on her again. So how was Naya Marsh's influence so very important? Well, she was a stickler for accuracy and heavily researched all aspects of crime for her novels. She didn't ever want to make a factual mistake, especially as she had many friends who were in the medical, scientific and legal fields. And so, no, in her words, bloomers. And as the writers in the room will attest, that if you do make a boo-boo, the readers will let you know. They're good like that. She called on the expertise of those around her, quizzing friends and colleagues about all things medical, scientific or criminal. Now, I had the pleasure of going to Martin Cottage, which is her family home in Cashmere Hills in Christchurch, and being able to have a good look through her library. Now, if you ever have the opportunity and are in Christchurch, for heaven's sakes, go. Naya Marsh House is essentially how she left it when she died. And you can just imagine her there, happily ensconced, writing her novels, surrounded by her books, her theatre memorabilia, and her beautiful gardens. And her library is fantastic. Uh, it's got books on everything from medical jurisprudence and police procedure, Scotland Yard, to true crime cases and drug trafficking. And she actually makes references to titles in her library within her novels, with her characters discussing the actual books. You know, little Easter eggs that made my nerdy little heart sing. 
Now, her work was also incredibly nuanced and made a lot of social commentary on the day. Now, it wasn't all light frippery and entertainment. Oh, no. It was exquisitely researched and observed commentary on the time. She really fed into public themes and paranoias of the day. And for example, you know, she discusses eugenics in her 1935 novel, The Nursing Home Murder, and this was in the lead-up to World War II. Naya Marsh was also very self-aware of the potential influence of her fiction, from copycat killing to her many references to the death penalty and the consequences of murder. Now, she poked fun at it, but I think it went deeper than that to her expressing an anxiety that someone might use her ideas created in the name of entertainment for evil intent. And I know as the writer, it's something that drifts like a little dark cloud in the back of my mind. And you do have to remember, this was in the days before the internet, when Twitter and Facebook can hold such sway now. Back in her day, it was the printed word that had the power, and authors carried far more influence than they do now. But that being said... It certainly didn't stop Naya Marsh from coming up with some of the more original and interesting ways of dispatching her poor victims. You know, she clearly had a lot of fun conjuring up some very original ways to knock people off. So just imagine being dispatched by a swinging Jeroboam of champagne or meeting your maker by getting shot in the head after hitting the soft pedal when playing Rachmaninoff's Prelude in C-sharp minor by a booby-tracked piano. Someone met their demise in a Rotorua mud pool. Another by transdermal poisoning by the delightfully named Slaypest. But she was also renowned for her prose, which was elegant and witty and her sharp and often hilarious character descriptions. She was esteemed as a writer, first and foremost. But she also liked to have poking fun at her books and at the genre of detective fiction. So you can understand how her writing became a hot favourite for the public. So how does this relate to the present? Well, Naya Marsh set the bar in writing style and accuracy that really does extend through to this day. Now, she was a trailblazer in so many ways, even down to marrying her detective Ellen to the very free-thinking, independent and successful in her own right as an artist, Agatha Troy. Now, today, her influence on the reading public is recognised through her name being given to our National Crime Writing Award, the Naya Marsh Award for Best Crime Fiction. Now, she always felt that crime fiction was seen as the poorer cousin of literature, so I think she would have been mightily chuffed to see her name on that award. And I think she would have been even more delighted to see that in New Zealand, having a national award for crime fiction finally has given it a sense of legitimacy and value. And it's added to the profile and manner of New Zealand crime fiction writing on the international stage. So when the Naya Marsh Award first started over 10 years ago, you could count the entries on two hands. But crime fiction writing in New Zealand has gone from strength to strength, so that, in fact, there have been 80 debut authors in recent years, as well as our established crime fiction writers and well-known authors extending their range into the crime genre. No, crime fiction is no longer the dodgy uncle of literature. In fact, two recent winners of the Naya Marsh Award for Crime Fiction have also been winners of the Jan Medlicott Acorn Prize for Fiction at the um, Ockham Book Awards, This Mortal Boy by Dame Fiona Kidman in 2019 and Owe by Becky Manawatu in 2020. So what does 
the example of Naya Marsh tell me about the future? Well, through the awards given in her name, she has ensured that the robust good health of New Zealand crime fiction into the future. The voices coming through in crime fiction are exciting, and we're being recognised on the international stage. But on a personal level, she continues to inspire this crime writer into the future. So what lessons have I learned from her incredible example? Number one, story is vital. Just enjoy telling the story. Secondly, be accurate. She loved her research. She loved her science. Let it enrich your work. Thirdly, crime fiction is important literature. It can reflect and discuss society and issues in a way that other genres can't. Embrace that. Fourthly, have fun. If you're not having fun, why are you doing this? And finally, keep writing. Just keep on flaming writing. Nayo was still writing novels until she died at aged 82. So I have a vision of future me in my 80s, gin in hand, probably dictating to some brilliant piece of software and still enjoying the nefarious thrill of committing crime. Thank you. A memorable close to tonight's proceedings. Um, thank you very much, ladies. It was absolutely fascinating. Can you please join me in uh, thanking Angela, Hannah, Steph and Vanda for a brilliant night. Thank you very much. This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival podcast was brought to you with funding from Copyright Licensing New Zealand and the expertise of ORFM. The festival also offers thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council and the Otago Community Trust. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.